and I especially hope it's been worth it to hang around now for Professor Sir David King. Um, Professor Sir David King is Emeritus Professor of Chemistry here at the University of Cambridge. He's founder and chair of the Centre for Climate Repair at the University and chair of the Climate Crisis Advisory Group as well as a senior strategy advisor to the President of Rwanda. He was the UK Government Chief Scientific Advisor from 2000 to 2007 and the Foreign Secretary Special Representative on Climate Change from 2013 to 2017. In February this year, he was awarded the David and Betty Hamburg AAAS Award for Science Diplomacy. He's published more than 500 articles, has 23 honorary degrees, and he's now going to uh, present to us on the problems and related solutions on climate uh, repair. Please welcome Sir David. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great honor for me to be addressing you today, and I think you've had a very busy day, and I don't want to keep you from neither dinner nor drinks, of course. Uh, so I've got a, a rather challenging presentation to make. You've been discussing net zero, which is the key objective at the moment as set by the UNFCCC, and I'm going to say to you, but that's not nearly enough. And I'll take you through the reasons behind this and then tell you what I think actually needs to be done to create a manageable future for humanity. So listen to those words carefully. I'm saying unless we do these things, there is no manageable future. So let me take you to the, the next slide. I'm in control, I realize. Um, Last summer, we had extreme weather events throughout the Northern Hemisphere. And I'm going to be saying to you that this was no coincidence. There was a, a single factor driving all of these extreme weather events. I chair a group called the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, which is composed of 15 of the world's leading climate scientists, uh, economists, etc from 11 different countries. And we've put out seven reports so far. I strongly recommend the seventh report, which has just come out. Our second report, and we've only been in existence nine months, came out at the end of August. And we explained during these extreme weather events exactly what was lying behind them. Now, it's, it's an uncomfortable fact that the discussion around climate change is all related to rather simplistic terminology. Uh, what, what is the appropriate temperature that we should be aiming to stay below? Used to be two degrees centigrade. I was one of those heavily involved in government in arguing for 1.5. But the target of 1.5, today we're not at 1.1 or 1.2, we're at 1.35. 1.15 is the average over the last 10 years, but it's rising quite rapidly. Draw a best fit to all the data and you arrive at 1.35 today. Chances of staying below 1.5 don't look very good. See a bit of shaking of heads here. Um, but even today, I'm going to say, we've already put too much in the way of greenhouse gases up there. Am I, Explanation for this is quite simple. These extreme weather events, by the way, the insurance industry and the reinsurance industry are saying their losses the previous year were in the region of $140 billion from extreme weather events. We haven't yet seen the figure from last year. Last year was way more serious around the whole of the Northern Hemisphere. And so what, what we're saying is it's getting worse and worse year on year, and we understand the origins of that. And I'm not going to give you too many graphs, not this late in the day, but this, this graph absolutely shows what is happening. In black, you see the average global temperature rise since the pre-industrial period. The graph covers 1860 to 2020. And so what you see in black is that figure arriving at 1.35 today. 
What do you see in red? That's the average annual temperature in the Arctic Circle region. The Arctic Circle region is now heating up at four times the rate of the rest of the planet. Now, this is the first of the tipping points that the climate scientists have been talking about for some time. And I'm sure you all understand in financial terms what a tipping point is. Your company's doing very, very well, and then suddenly off it goes. And a tipping point in, in science is simply the same thing, that if we see temperatures rising in the Arctic Circle region, and the threat is that the ice covering the Arctic Ocean melts during the polar summer, exposing the blue sea below it to sunshine. And the blue sea soaks up 80 to 90% of the heat from the sunshine, whereas the white ice reflects 90% of it back into space. And so that's the underlying cause of this. For the first time in many, many hundreds of thousands of years, the Arctic Sea is no longer covered by ice during the three polar months. And that's why I stressed these extreme weather events were during the, the months of the polar summer. A member of my group, the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, Tero Mustanen, comes from northern Finland. He lives on the permafrost, the permanent frost, we called it. We'll have to say that in the past tense because the frightening reality is that is now beginning to melt irreversibly. I spoke to Tero in April last year. We were just chatting. He said, it's bloody cold today. It's about minus 32 degrees centigrade. He said, but we've been living here for thousands of years. We know how to handle it. I spoke to him at the end of July, a very small number of months later, and he said to me, you're not going to believe it. The temperature is now between 20, plus 25 and 30. Same place on the permafrost. So what has happened? The Arctic Ocean soaking up sunshine very quickly gets warm. We all like swimming in the Aegean in the summer, but not in the winter. It gets warm very quickly, and the air above it gets warm. And it's the warming of the air above it that is the big tipping point, because it means that the surrounding land masses are also getting warm very rapidly. And these surrounding land masses include the permafrost region, and they also include Greenland. So now I'm going to take you to the next slide, which simply summarizes what is, what is happening. I'm going to say a little bit more about this polar vortex in the middle. We've got a wind that blows anti-clockwise around the North Pole. And that wind, labeled the jet stream, has been doing this for as long as we have any records. And it's pretty well circular, or has been, until we come to the period of the polar summer, and it's now drastically meandering. It's no longer a circular wind. This wind plays a critical role. It keeps the cold air in the North Pole region and the warm air from the equatorial region out of that cold air region. So this wind, just remember this, to the south of the wind, it's warm. To the north of the wind, it's cold. That's the general reasoning. And this, this is a, a real map of the world produced by the Met Office showing a particular point in time with this being meandered. And you'll see that the coldest region on the planet was by no means the North Pole, and this corresponds to about five years ago. This was not the North Pole, the coldest region, but that region between Canada and the United States. The North Pole, in fact, sitting in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, is now around 25, 30 degrees centigrade, above zero, right? So for the three months, we've got this dramatic change. So imagine this. You've got warm air supplanting the cold air that was there before, and that is what is now pushing that 
jet stream into distortion. <coughs> Excuse me. So in this central slide, whoops, that was a mistake. In the central slide here, what, what, what you see is that over America, we get this cold air being pushed down. And, and of course, we can't have a vacuum, so warm air gets pulled up. Right, so we get this big meandering because this is the warm air sucked up because the cold air is being pushed down. So what, what we get with this meandering is dramatic changes in the global weather systems. You can all see that, I'm sure. So if I then say to you, let's look at these changes and, and how they are affecting us. Greenland is now its ice is now melting irreversibly. Now, why is that frightening? When all of the Greenland ice has melted, global sea levels, global sea levels will have risen on average by 6.5 meters by 23 feet. Just the ice on Greenland. And if you're wondering how the hell can there be that much ice on Greenland, just remember that every winter for the last hundreds of thousands of years, Water has been leaving the oceans in the form of vapor, forming clouds. Clouds over this region form snow, so we're converting water from the oceans into ice on land. Right, so it's just been happening every polar summer, uh, polar winter for donkey's years. So here's the big frightening factor. But of course, what I'm telling you now is happening in the Himalayas as well. Ice is melting irreversibly everywhere in the world. I'm quoting there the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But what does that mean? And the, the IPCC is very careful about just talking about going to the year 2100, and then they're very careful to give you rather low figures. We can all look back in our civilization's history, 6,000 years. How far ahead can we look? Apparently not more than 100 years, and at the moment, that is highly realistic. It doesn't look much like we're going to go beyond the end of the century. And I'll try and explain this and then say what needs to be done. As the permafrost melts, what we see is illustrated here, bubbling of methane coming out of the permafrost. This exists in the permafrost as methane hydrate. It forms a molecule with water, and the methane hydrate is stable until you get somewhere just below the melting point of ice. So as the permafrost begins to melt, the methane leaves the, the permafrost. Methane is about 130 times more effective than carbon dioxide per molecule as a greenhouse gas, 130 times. So what, what I'm saying to you is, this is potentially a disaster of enormous proportions. If all of the methane there were to be lost within, let's say, a period of 20 years, short time because methane doesn't have a long lifetime in the atmosphere, but if it was all to be released in 20 years, and this is possible with a tipping point going, temperatures would rise by 10 degrees centigrade. Right, so we, we're talking about a dramatic transformation. Nobody, nor me, is going to say to you when that would happen, or even if it would happen. But if you're into risk analysis, this is not a risk you would want to take. And so I think you can see that all three of these represents a different series of challenges to humanity. Now, this business of methane emerging, I'm one of those scientists who's been very cautious about what I say about methane emergence. And then we got news from Russia that up there in northern uh, Siberia, they were getting explosive releases of methane. So this particular crater, the explosion was reported to the Russian government from a small town on the permafrost about 200 kilometers from where it happened. So it was an enormous explosion. 
I believe the people who reported it thought that they, they were being used as a testing bed for uh, uh, explosive material for warfare. The Russian Academy of Science, Scientists were sent up there by the government to investigate, and these are the pictures they took. These craters are about 50, 60 meters in diameter. They measure about 70 meters deep, and there's about 1,000 of them so far. This is a big release of methane because underneath the permafrost, it actually appears to be getting warmer than at the surface region. And the reason for that is because the seawater around is penetrating in there and that water is now warm. And so we get a big bubble of methane formed under the permafrost. And when the pressure in the bubble is, is greater than the gravitational force of the permafrost above it, bang, it goes. So uh, this is a potential disaster, as I say. Nobody's going to say to you how long it would take or if it's going to happen even. But it's now looking more and more likely. And these have been observed since 2014. And as I say, probably well over a 1,000 so far have, have uh, occurred. Rising sea levels. Where are we going with rising sea levels? On the left-hand side is a picture of the country of Vietnam. Now, Vietnam is a country that was formed by the Mekong River. Silt carried down that river over many thousands of years has created the whole country of Vietnam. So it's a very low-lying country, very close to sea level. But the whole of this country is that delta that you can see the Mekong Delta there. This was a, a first analysis made 15 years ago of the likelihood of Vietnam being covered by seawater once a year. So the pale blue indicates the regions that would be covered by seawater. Why is this a disaster? This delta is one of the biggest rice-producing areas in the world. You flood that with seawater, it's not going to be producing rice. Here's an, a reanalysis with the sort of data that I'm now telling you about but also with a re-evaluation of the height of Vietnam above sea level. And the prediction is now that about 90% of the landmass of Vietnam will be underwater once a year at least, seawater, by 2050. That's in less than 30 years from now. Across the water is Indonesia, and you may all know that Jakarta will no longer be the capital of Indonesia. And the reason is, last year it was flooded for two months under flood water, the streets of, uh, of Jakarta. We could say the same about other land masses, particularly in the region of Southeast Asia, where they're susceptible to uh, massive storms at sea. Uh, and so, of course, in a storm, the water incurses further inland. Uh, these estimates are based on the, the annual cycle of the moon. So this is the, 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 the sea level rise simply due to the mean's gravitational force on the water. So I guess what I'm saying is that distant thought that we don't have to worry is now actually today. These extreme weather events are occurring now. Uh, you will have seen the floods in Durban in South Africa unheard of in that region of the world. The, the floods in, in America last summer, unheard of again. So we're, we're getting not just extreme weather events. The, let me take you to the next slide. This is now just taking you back through on the left-hand side, the jet stream in its circular form. And then on the right-hand side, the uh, the distortion of the jet stream. The next picture is again provided by this time the American Met Office of the last summer event. So the next slide. It's a very graphic description of what I'm saying. You'll see that the, the jet stream got locked in place along the west coast of America, all the way up to Canada. And it comes around here because the cold air coming down from the North Pole 
pushed its way all the way down Central America. That warm finger of air coming up there created a temperature rise measured not just 0 0.1, 0 0.2 degrees centigrade above the previous record, but 5 to 10 degrees centigrade above the previous record. These are frightening temperatures because up in Linton, British Columbia, this is a, a wonderful middle-class, upper middle-class town. Many people died because in Canada you don't have air conditioning. It's a pretty cold part of the world. And to have 50 degrees centigrade was simply, by the way, no human being can survive a temperature with any reasonable humidity above 45 degrees centigrade for three days. You cannot survive even sitting in the shade. You need air conditioning to survive. So 50 degrees centigrade is beyond you. Of course, because it's high, much higher than our blood temperature, we can't get rid of that extra heat, and so we die from overheating. And over 120 people died in, in uh, Lytton. And of course, around the, the, the jet stream, I don't want to dwell on this, oops. Let me go back. Around the, the jet stream, we get all these big weather disturbances. And you will know that the east coast of America had massive flooding and so on. It's the existence of this strong westerly wind, which would normally be blowing around, keeping cold air up there, which has been massively distorted. So I, I hope I've been able to explain to you, we can say these extreme weather events we're all associated with what I'm now showing you. The bottom line of what I've been saying is that yes, we must have deep and rapid emissions reduction. And certainly my climate crisis advisory group says we must do this in an orderly fashion. We don't want all economies to crash but we must also do it in a fair fashion. So if we talk about a carbon budget remaining to be burned, I hope you can see that I'm saying actually we're already in deficit. There's too much greenhouse gas up there now. And so what we do need to do is regard any further burning of fossil fuels as increasing the deficit. So I'm talking in financial terms. We're borrowing greenhouse gases from the future by having this orderly transition, but it's got to be deep and rapid. And surely we've got to have all nations getting together and saying, we, the Western world, must take the bigger hit quicker and have less of the remaining carbon budget and the developing countries must be brought along with us. We've got to see that there's financial transfer to those countries. And I, I frankly don't see that there's a choice in this matter. Anyone who's at COP26, and I was a negotiator, leading negotiator for Britain, will know that there's a distrust emerged between the developing world and the developed world, and that distrust all exists because the developed world has promised $100 billion a year. That was public money. And now we're talking about adding other money into that in, in many different ways. The Oxfam is saying actually it's $20.9 billion a year at the moment of public money as promised. And these countries are saying, you guys promise everything. And I, I fear that the country that really has to take a lot of the blame is the United States, our very close ally across the oceans. The United States has been blocked by a very efficient coal, oil and gas lobby. That lobby still today has got the Senate and Congress in its pockets. And it's very difficult. You look at the gun lobby, you look at all of the power of the lobby systems, and this goes against uh, democratic elections, I believe. But we can't put that right, and the whole world suffers because we don't have United States leadership. The United States may be pointing a finger at China. China has done much more on switching away from fossil fuels. Yes, their economy is growing quickly. They're putting up more coal-fired power stations, but they've got more wind turbines, more solar panels, more nuclear power than the rest of the world put together. 
put, all put in place since 2012 when they made a commitment on climate change. So I think you can understand we've got the wrong sort of leadership at the moment. Um, when, when I was working with Blair and Brown and subsequently with uh, Cameron and May, poor little Britain was trying to play that global leading role. And frankly, we don't have the clout that a United States would have. So I, I fear that those aren't comfortable words for me to say. Now, here at the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge, we are working up a whole series of collaborations with groups around the world to find the technologies that will get us out of this problem. So, sorry, let me just go back. What we need to do, yes, deep and rapid emissions reduction. Let me move on from that. We need to find out how we can remove excess greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere and the rest of the stuff we're going to put up over the next 50 years or so. How can we remove that at scale? And when I say at scale, we're going to have to remove 30 to 40 billion tons of greenhouse gases a year, and today we're emitting 40 billion tons of greenhouse gases a year. So we've got to reverse that process. And we are developing, I think, some fairly promising technologies in that area. But in the meantime, we can't just hang around and leave the Arctic in this position as is. It's in, and so believe it or not, we're now working on how we can refreeze the Arctic during the three polar summer months. So that's our big challenge. And these uh, are two projects here, that the uh, remove and repair that we're putting a lot of effort into. Here's my favorite project of all, marine biomass regeneration, all based on a simple discovery. We, we all know whaling, which was the first form of oil discovery, and whaling was done for the blubber of the, of the deep water whales that travel around in very cold water the baleen whales, they're now down at 1% to 5% of where they used to be. But we all thought predator-prey, it means the fish and everything else that they eat will be in abundance. It's the reverse. And here's the understanding of the critical function of the whales in the biosystems of the ocean. The whales tend to eat, these baleen whales, tend to eat krill, and krill exists about 300 to 500 meters below the surface of the sea. It's pretty cold down there, but these big whales can take a deep breath, enormous lungs, and stay down there for a long time. And we all thought they have to come up for air every few days. They have to come up for two reasons. All of their orifices are jammed shut by the high pressure. And of course, it means they have to relieve themselves as well. And so the whales come up to create feces in what we call the photic zone, in the region of the ocean surface that is open to sunlight. Critically important because they bring this fertile material up there. It contains all the nitrates, phosphates, silicates, and iron that is needed for green matter to form. When you get a pod of whales coming to the surface, and excreting, within a week, that area is totally green. It's a great green carpet on the sea, maybe 5,000 square kilometers. That green carpet is all phytoplankton. Phytoplankton is the initial foodstuff of fish larvae. Fish larvae of every kind of fish need phytoplankton. Within a month or two, that area may have half a billion fish. Fish eggs are still abundant. Average female fish lays 100,000 to 200,000 eggs a year. And the flow of water in the oceans means the oceans are full of fish eggs. Of course, the vast proportion of those when the larvae hatch die, but not when there's green phytoplankton. And so what you get is this return of the oceans. Uh, and that has been going on for hundreds of years until 400 years ago when we very efficiently began whaling. So what our project involves is actually learning 
What the faeces contains that is crucial to the development of this green layer, and then just artificially laying it on the surface of the ocean. The first experiment, this all began six months ago. It's a big consortium. The first experiment is being conducted as I talk to you now. It's a very exciting time. In the Arabian Sea, the ship left from Goa. Um, one of our people in the consortium is from the Goa Marine Studies Institute. And it's 220 nautical miles from Goa, anchored there, and they're doing experiments with, uh, with artificial faeces. Most of us have no doubt this is going to work, but we will run experiments for two or three years. Uh, the next one will be in the summer off Hawaii in the mid-Pacific, the next one off Cape Town in the Southern Ocean in January, February next year. We've got a whole cycle of these all set up to go. And then we will roll it out around island nations of the world where they are very reliant on fish for their living, and for example, Tonga, tuna, which they exported to the United States. The tuna catch has been dropping for the last 30 years. We've been in discussions with the Tongan government. They would be delighted to have us there to do our trial experiments around them. And we're pretty confident we can return the tuna catch to that region. So I think what, what you see here is a pro project of enormous proportion. I don't want to underestimate this. We believe we're going to have to cover the oceans something like 1% to 3% of the deep ocean surface every year with our artificial whale faeces. And after 30 or 40 years, the whale population will have recovered, and we can then leave the job to the whales. So there's a, a program of work. How much fish stock will we Im improve on? Sorry, I'm going to stop in just a moment. How much fish stock will we uh, uh, develop? I think the fish stock will improve by at least 70% in the world's oceans. Um, how much carbon will we capture? Probably tens of billions of greenhouse gas tons per annum. So it's a very promising technology. I'm not going to have time, but let me dangle this in front of somebody who might ask a question. <laughs> to take you through how we might think of refreezing the Arctic. But what I, what I want to say is, this is a great sense of excitement. Uh, every post we advertise on this job, we just get so many brilliant applicants. So it's, it's, um, there's a sense of belief that we've got to do this, and there's also a sense that unless we do this, uh, the, the younger people in the team, I'm not one of these, will not have a very satisfactory future to look forward to. Now, I, I've already said the investment community is in many ways the most important community. Why do I say that? Simply because the investments you make today need to be fit for purpose in the 21st century. And fit for purpose, when you invest in infrastructure, it's likely to be there for 40, 50, 60 years. Just remember, that infrastructure may not be fit for purpose in the world I'm describing. Thank you. What a fantastic presentation. And unfortunately, we don't have a huge amount of time, but I do want to take a couple of questions if we can. I was thinking it sounds like a Monty Python skit that the, uh, the solutions are refreezing the Arctic and replicating whale poo. Um, it sounds uh, something like a, a, a comedy. Um, questions, please, table seven, Denise. Can you give us just a wee small hint on how you will refreeze the Arctic? <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> It so happens. Um, so, what we're, we're, we're very keen that all of our processes are imitations of natural processes, biomimicry. When there's a storm at sea, you get great uh, big waves formed. When they crash, of course, they, they produce tiny droplets of seawater. 
The wind can pick those up and carry them up because the ocean's warm, carry them up into the upper atmosphere where they, uh, the salt in the ice particle creates a cloud. So you get a great cloud of these salt particles and that then creates a white cloud. If the salt particles are small enough, the droplets in the cloud are small, and so you get a white cloud. A white cloud, of course, reflects sunlight away. A black cloud soaks it up, so it's very important. We're aiming to create white cloud cover. And the, the vessel that has been designed is shown here. This is a, a simulation, of course, of what we would love to build. Uh, we're creating this spray without using any input energy. It's using the movement of air and water to create the energy required. Uh, and the droplets are then in this stream just carried upwards. If, if this salt spray hits a black cloud and drops onto it, it turns it white. So we can also whiten black clouds in this way. All of this works, but what we need to do is first of all build this vessel and then we will probably have to have about 700 to 1,000 of these vessels around the Arctic Circle and operate only those vessels where the wind direction is such that it would carry clouds over the Arctic Circle region. So we put surround the Arctic Circle, but they're all operated remotely and we just operate those that will create clouds that are carried over the Arctic Circle. We only have to do it for three months in the year. Um, but of course, the, the capital cost is quite high and there is no commercial product from this process. Uh, of course, I would hope that the insurance and reinsurance industry would be interested in helping us to raise the money, but so are governments. We've been talking, of course, to the Dutch government who are very interested. So I think uh, what, what there's little doubt of if we can demonstrate the feasibility, the money will begin to flow in. So David, uh, could I interrupt a moment? We have a very um, strict promise with our delegates to finish on time. However, Sir David has four more slides and I would like to make time for questions. So are we, can we have permission to close this session out in 15 minutes at six o'clock? Everyone happy with that? Excellent, thank you for your generosity. Please continue, Sir David, <laughs> with your four slides and questions, Amanda. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you. I, I think, I th although it is four more slides, uh, these were just thrown into the pack. So uh, maybe I, I just, if, if people are always, especially from the financial sector, interested in how we're proceeding. This is the timeline for the uh, marine cloud brightening experiment. We're into phase one now creating tiny droplets of water so that these salt crystals are very small. Then You can't even see them with the eye. They're about a micron or less in uh, diameter. Phase two, we need public engagement so we don't get a big outcry that we're interfering with the weather. And of course, design and manufacture of scaled up equipment and then field trials. Why have we got Australia listed there? mainly because, of course, there's a tremendous desire to save the Great Coral Reef, uh, the Great Barrier Reef, and the, uh, the notion of cooling the ocean may just be what they need, so it's a, it's a possibility. So the Australians are also very interested in that. But the real field trials will finally happen in the Arctic region. Um, okay, this is the, the whale poo. Uh, if, if the, uh, I think the, the, oh, wait, I'm going backwards, aren't I? This is, this is a, a lovely demonstration of how this works. The whale eating krill down below comes up, creates the feces, and you get this rapid increase in phytoplankton, you also get diatoms forming, you get a vast amount of krill, so the whales themselves are benefiting from the process, and the increase then in the whale population. Why does the whale population increase? At the moment, the, region of the, world, the regions of the world that are rich in krill 
of the Arctic Sea and the Southern Ocean around the Antarctic. It's very cold there. The mothers have discovered they have to leave that area and go up into the tropics to have their babies. Otherwise, the babies die in the cold water. They haven't got blubber to protect them. And so they have their babies. If you're on the east coast of Africa, you often see the whales arriving to have their, their babies. They stay there for many months until the babies have built up enough fat that they will survive in the colder water. In that period of time, the mothers are not eating at all. They lose a lot of their blubber during this period. They're simply feeding their youngsters. And there's a lot of deaths that arise from that. So we are absolutely confident. This is a form of behavior that is adaptive to the changed conditions as a result of the whaling that has occurred. If we can restore this, we have little doubt the whale population will increase. Uh, and what else have I got? Oh, here's a timeline for uh, ocean regeneration. So you'll see here, we're into phase one. We're in our first experiment now. And these experiments will last into uh, 2024. And then we go into the large-scale field trials, which are the island trials I mentioned. We'll probably be, do that by setting up a not-for-profit company. We don't want to be seen to be profiting from this experimental work, but we do believe we can use this as a development process for those islands. And we will teach the islanders what we are doing. And then we need to roll out to the deep oceans of the world. So it's, it's a painstakingly slow process, but uh, we will get there as quickly as we can. And what is the slow point? Money. So I think uh, I've taken you through my remaining slides. Ellen, you have a question? I'm just wondering what the difference is between the uh, whale poo solution and ocean iron fertilization? Could you describe the differences? Oh, ocean iron fertilization is a, a phrase that was used when uh, a chap by the, an American by the name of Martin came up with this notion that many of the oceans were deficient in iron, and this was the reason why there was a deficiency in biomass in the oceans. And many experiments were conducted around the world, and many of them were not successful. We've now completed a broad map of the world in terms of the nutrient content of the surface region of the oceans. And between the tropics, the oceans are not only short of iron, they're also short of nitrates, phosphates, and silicates. So, we believe that this mixture that the whales deliver is absolutely critical to, to create a positive outcome. The iron fertilization has, uh, has, been, ha has had a moratorium put on it by the London Protocol for dumping at sea. And I think the, the, that in itself is something that will need to be uh, dealt with as we proceed through this timeline. We will have to, when we leave the uh, EEZs of the countries, the island nations, when we go into the broader oceans, we will have to have London Protocol permission. Further questions? Yes, Will. Um, perhaps a cliched question, but to what extent do you worry that the solutions are going to be a distraction for policymakers and decarbonizing the real economy? And, and a sort of secondary question, how do you how do you personally square the disconnect between the opening messaging and the lack of political discourse on, on, on climate topics, lack of political attention? I didn't quite get that. Let me, let me ask again. On the, on the, the, the first question is, to what extent do you worry that the solutions that you've spoken to become a political distraction to decarbonizing the economy? Sorry. Uh, Yes, the so-called moral dilemma. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the, the, this is a very real issue, and there are many people who are saying you shouldn't even talk about it. Um, I hope you can see that I do not believe there's a future for humanity if we don't actually begin actions on it now. 
the, the only way I can respond, and I do respond very regularly to this, is by saying, please look at where we stand now. And when I talk to the oil, gas, and coal companies, uh, which I still do, uh, I do say to them, actually, there is no future. If you continue down that route, your companies will disappear. They will evaporate. There, there has to be an understanding that this isn't an alternative. If we remove 40 billion tons a year, and that we go on emitting 40 billion tons a year, then we're cooked anyway. And somehow that message has to be got across. The moral dilemma is a big one because uh, Greenpeace, for example, uh, is a, a very respectable and powerful organization, and they certainly believe that it's wrong for us to even begin to carry out these experiments. More questions? Yes, Rachel. Rachel Halpin, Jana Investment Advisors. Uh, your colleague, um, Julian Allwood, started off the session today, and he said, um, we have never intervened in the natural ecosystem without unexpected consequences. I'm keen to understand if you've had a discussion with him about that, or I'm sure you've turned your mind to it. Yes. I mean, we are proceeding as quickly as we can, but within the context of following every possible outcome that may be negative as we proceed. So the experiments that are being conducted now in, uh, off the coast of India are experiments that have been very, very carefully designed, and they are all what, what we call mesocosm experiments. They're contained in plastic bags, so it is the ocean water in the ocean, but it's not released into the ocean, it's taken back on land and only analyzed when, uh, when we get the samples back on land. All of the analyses are aiming to see whether there are negative impacts of what we're doing. Uh, it's, it's quite clear that acting responsibly is the key to managing the whole process. Hello. Ella Hoxer from Pictet. Um, thanks, Sir David, for that. Um, I think my question is also policy-related. Um, the reality on your three solution points um, to tackling the problem is, in terms of reducing emissions, it's very, very difficult to do the reality of it um, because of the economic repercussions that governments would fail would face. I apologize. Um, so it does put more and more pressure on potentially the carbon sink solutions and the other alternatives that you propose. Um, do you think, uh, or are you hopeful that we can do it that way? I know you said just now that, you know, sort of taking out 40 billion uh, kilotons of emissions and sort of emitting the same sort of gets you nowhere. But uh, it does appear that the sort of the, the actual emission reductions um, seems very, very difficult because of our dependency on fossil fuel. So how, how can we tackle that? Well, it's, in, it's interesting that you should ask that question because that's what I, I worked on all that time I was in government. And um, I think it's fair to say the British government led, but Germany led the way initially when they introduced feed-in tariffs for anyone who cared to put up wind turbines or photovoltaics, 1989. And at that point in time, renewable energy was maybe 50 times as expensive as energy from fossil fuels. What is the cheapest form of new energy in Britain today? It's offshore wind. Now that surprised everybody, right? And the reason is twofold. One, because the British government was very keen to show that we could go to net zero. And so investing in offshore wind became popular because people didn't want onshore wind. That was the first thing. The second thing was very important. The oil and gas companies who could have been making these investments working in the North Sea had marine engineers which were attracted into the 
offshore wind industry by the higher salaries, but also because oil and gas was being, it was diminished in supply. It was those marine engineers, when they joined, when the price collapsed. They knew all about stabilizing onto the floor of the ocean in, in the North Sea. And so what, what, you, what you saw, it's incredible to me that the oil and gas companies didn't appreciate that they had those skills. But why are these offshore wind turbines so efficient? The turbines are made in hull. The turbine blades, they're 110 I think, meters long now. They're planning longer blades. The length of a blade on a wind turbine determines its efficiency in producing kilowatt hours. These are easily the most efficient wind turbines in the world. Unexpected, right? You can ship them to, to hoist them up onto the, uh, the poles, but you couldn't carry them across land with such a long size, right? There's no road that is uh, straight enough in this country that we could do that. So it's critically important to understand offshore wind has had enormous benefits. By, by 2015, even before the meeting in Paris, more than 50% of global uh, new energy construction, global, was renewable energy. So this is the marketplace playing through. Here in Germany, followed by the whole of Europe, those feed-in tariffs costing the public money produced this enormous market, and the market then penetrated across the rest of the world. So I think it's wrong to say that the fossil fuel industry is here for a longer stay. I think the fossil fuel industry, which is receiving still subsidies way in excess of any renewable energy today, I mean 100 times, is still fostered by governments because it's maybe inertia in, in behavior. I don't think it's got anything to do with economics. And I, I do think that what you see in China, and this also happens in Africa, Eight of the fastest growing countries in the world are in Africa today. Where the economy is growing quickly, energy demand goes up faster than the growth in the economy because more and more middle class people are there demanding more energy. And so I think they are using fossil fuels where they're available. But countries like Rwanda that switch across to renewables, they, they're creating all their energy from their own resources. And that also is a very big boon to their economic growth. So I, I just think we, we need to sit down and have a discussion about your point. I don't think it's valid. We only have one minute left. I believe Colin wants to make the closing <laughs> comment. Uh, David, Colin Tate from Connexus Financial. Can you, um, above all of this, is we require a very rapid transformation of human behavior. Does the human condition not suggest that our levels of selfishness make this near impossible? The, the what condition? The human condition of our selfishness makes the ambition that you're speaking about and the emergency that you're speaking about makes it possibly impossible. Yeah, that's a very gloomy com comment and uh, there's a lot of reality, I'm afraid, behind it. Um, the, 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 the world altogether, I wouldn't say we're in a comfortable place and I'm not just talking about uh, Ukraine. Uh, I think that uh, the, uh, the, the, the notion that this is a global game changer still hasn't got through. And so really that message really is critically important. I think anything we can do to get that message across, absolutely critical. Please thank Sir David King. <laughs>